When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following is a presentation of Morning Drive Media. From the southernmost point of Dorn to the lands of always winter, what is west of west and the shadows in the east, this is Casterly Talk. I'm Ken Napsock for another audio-only edition. We'll return to YouTube. Don't you worry. I don't know why there's that pool for me uh, to, to want to get back doing YouTube live stuff. It was a lot of fun. I'm trying to disconnect from the pool of YouTube and social media right now. So I'm having an existential crisis. I need to talk to uh, Eamon Targaryen. Kill the YouTube. Raise the TikTok. No, Eamon, no. Got some of your questions coming up. I'm going to play a little interview uh, stumbled upon from, gosh, 2005. Of George R. R. Martin talking about his writing process, uh, or maybe even kind of the lack thereof. <laughs> writing process? No, he does. He does. Uh, this is uh, from the Library of Congress, but there was uh, a, a 2005 National Book Festival on September 24th. 2005, years before HBO made the books into their hit show. And George was speaking at that. There's a question about some stuff there that's interesting because 2005, well, we're still, still a ways away from book five, book five. Yeah. And we are now tremendously close, question mark, to book six, but very, very far away, as you all know, from book five. So we're going to be spending a moment with that for you, uh, you book readers there. And we got, like I said, some of your questions. Some of them have been sitting in the till here for a little bit. Sitting in the queue, waiting, and I'm getting to those today, and excited to get to those today. Thank you to everyone uh, that uh, listened and enjoyed The Why of Jon Snow last week. We'll be doing more of those. Thomas Risling will come back soon, and we'll be looking more into Fire and Blood as we get ready for uh, House of the Dragon. But as we know, we got some time. we got some time. So we'll be uh, getting uh, to all that stuff um, here. But... I wanted to get into some of uh, the questions out there uh, from our callers. And this first one is from Nick. And here we go. Hey, Ken. I've just been rereading some of Fire and Blood. And it got me to thinking about Jon Snow's uh, Targaryen name and the name that he was given. Obviously, in the show, he's given the name Aegon Targaryen. Uh, but we know that George R. R. Martin loves the trope of history repeating itself and people taking after their ancestors and repeating the deeds of their ancestors. And I think that Jon Snow has a lot more in common uh, in personality and temperament with somebody like Jaehaerys Targaryen than he does with any of the Aegons. Uh, and especially given the fact that Elia Martell already gave birth to another Aegon Targaryen in the same generation. Uh, what do you think the odds are that Jon Snow's Targaryen name will stay Aegon Targaryen in the book series is, uh, do you think it's more likely that George R. R. Martin will give him a different name like Jaehaerys? Like Thank you. 
Nick, that is a, a great question, and I love it. I love having a little book-heavy question here. Yeah, so for those who maybe haven't read the books, and I know there's a lot out there. Uh, I, I guess slight spoiler warning? I don't know. I don't know how to handle that anymore. <laughs> if, if you're listening, you either know or you don't care that, that you know. There in, in the show, and we talked a lot last week about the why of Jon Snow and why I feel that the name Aegon Targaryen had no true meaning to him. It wasn't part of that character's journey and theme, the big themes, not necessarily the in-story journey, but just what we were supposed to take from it. We were supposed to take the journey of him starting uh, by going to the Wall to fight the wildlings, and then he ends up walking north of the Wall with the Free Folk and him, one of them. So that's all part of the journey, right? Uh, and But it, it factors into this thing. I, I think, Nick, to, to answer your point, uh, you answer your question directly, and with a fine point, I think it's a super big chance. I, I put good money down at Vegas that George R. R. Martin never was uh, going to be using the name Aegon Targaryen for John in the books, and the Jaehaerys definitely makes a lot of sense. Um, Rhaegar Jr. <laughs> makes a lot of sense to me. Aegon does not, because, as you mentioned, Elliot Martell already had an Aegon. Then we got Fakegon, Aegon Six, right? So, or the, the alleged, which is still uh, something that we, we don't know the ending of, John Connington and and uh, Young Griff, Old Griff, all that kind of stuff that was going on, which is, is some of my favorite stuff in the book, and it's still going to play out. And I think, I think in my mind, I can't, if you guys know if there's any specific reference to it, I think Dan and Dave just kind of looked at all that and said, you know, another another Targaryen or an alleged Targaryen rising up to cause problems for Daenerys, just the mere presence of another Targaryen, specifically another male Targaryen named Aegon. I think we can slide a little little bit of that over to Jon Snow. And I, and I think that's why it was used. And again, why it didn't have as much as, as a payoff as maybe as some would have wanted. Again, I would argue it was not the point of the story. But I digress. But I think in the books, yes, Jon is definitely more aligned with his true father. He's also aligned with Ned, his spiritual father there. Um, and if you read... As we have been and have been looking at Jaharis in uh, Fire and Blood and just what we know of him. Yeah, John, John's got a lot of that there, too. I think Danny's got all of them. I think Danny might have a little bit uh, too much of her father and some of those on that side. But I don't think all the way. I think a lot of what happens to her is, again, a lesson in how we treat uh, women in the world and women in this world. And, and I think there's some statements there. Not to absolve Danny. That's, the show does not absolve a lot of people of their sins. Um, so where Danny, um, where her hardwiring, her Targaryen hardwiring, hardwiring comes from is interesting to me. But as related to John, I think George will, will play it out that, yeah, it would be. Jairus works. Jairus was the rumored one. You know, again, Rhaegar, uh, you know, if if you know Rhaegar's dead, if, if you're Lana Stark, you know. Rhaegar's dead, and you know you have you know his sons just you know been birthed in your hands, and you're dying. Eh, you know, are you going to go through? Maybe unless it was something Rhaegar talked about with her. Hey, what are we going to do, more Kip? Well, here's some options with my vast family history. Jaharis seems like the one that we'd like him to be. Uh, maybe, uh, hopefully, 
uh, because of your strong Stark blood and what I hope is my good Targaryen hard wiring. Maybe we can get him to be like Jaehaerys and maybe the name will help, right? Is that, the, is that a conversation they could have had? I, I believe that. It's possible in my head, Canon. But I also think in the, in the moment there, uh, uh, Rhaegar, um, I don't know if it's Rhaegar the second. Gosh, I, I don't have, I don't have uh, Wiki of Ice and Fire up right now. I apologize. It, it could be a, a Rhaegar Jr. So all I need to <laughs> keep saying in my head. That, that, that would make some sense in kind of the, the heat of the moment, so to speak. It, it, with her dying breaths, Lyanna, to me, just wouldn't be looking at the vast history of the Targaryens and trying to give them a proper Targaryen name. She tried to pay homage to the man she loved and the man that she, um, as, uh, you know, created this child with. So Rhaegar is an out outside bet for me too but i think that's i think that's there and again i think more than anything you look at fake on egg on uh was egg on the six uh or seventh I, the numbers when you when you don't have them in front of you and often on this show i just open up the mic and go uh which is not i wouldn't recommend doing that if you have a game of Thrones show but hey god fake god young griff i i do think that a lot of that will factor in into the books a little bit more and uh, we'll go from there. Hey, maybe maybe he's the one that kills Danny. I don't know. Maybe John goes off on a total different tangent. We'll see. But I do think he'll do it not as Aegon. So, uh, Nick, great question. I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, fun to think about that. And we're getting so close. Right? Look, I can't wait for Winds of Winter. But at this point, since all we've had to do is wait, it's not an... It's not an active impatience. I'm not scratching another day on a wall like I'm Ray and a, and a collapsed Adat Walker counting down the days to her parents' return on Jakku. Winds of winter is not that for me. It'll come when, when it comes. And I'm actually to the point. This I would love this idea. That there's no announcement. There's no countdown. There's no more released chapters. George doesn't say anything on his life journal. One day you're walking in the airport, or maybe you're swinging through a, a, a big box store that has a book section, and you look over and you say, what is that? Is that, is that Winds of Winter? Holy crap. They release Winds of Winter. I would like that. Much like a band or an artist just dropping a surprise album. Surprise, here's my double album opus. At this point, I think that's what I want. As I said up top, this is an old interview I found on. Uh, there's a channel called Aegon Targaryen. I'm not subscribed to it, but I go to, a, go to it a lot. It's in my uh, YouTube recommends a lot because of the algorithms, of course. Oh, those algorithms. Um, and they pull, well, the reasons I don't subscribe to it, they just pull from a lot of different places. They do try to give credit or link to the full interviews when possible. YouTube's a murky world, so it's podcasting. I'm not playing this these clips when I do from time to time with any uh, official permission, but I'm trying to give some credit, uh, credit. You can go to loc.gov slash item slash webcast dash three, seven, four, nine. If you want to write that down to get the full interview of George R.R. R. Martin, this is in 2005 being asked about his writing process. It's a bit of a long clip, but I want to play it. And also, George, George has got a, he's got a relaxing voice to me. You know, is the George R. R. Martin ASMR is kind of a thing, I guess. I don't know. 
it's a weird one here today, right? Thanks for bearing with me. Now, let's play it. Because the, the headline is George R. Martin on why he doesn't write outlines. And I just saw that and went, yeah, that makes sense. So here we go. Really well in Song of Ice and Fire is the foreshadowing. Um, there, are th- you know, there are things in book three that are foreshadowed as far back as book two and maybe even book one. And I was wondering if you have difficulty balancing the foreshadowing with spontaneity as a writer. Um, but if you have these things that you've foreshadowed, then uh, how, how do you balance that with spontaneity? Do you feel like you're straightjacketing yourself to a certain plot? No, I don't, I don't find that foreshadowing things lessens the spontaneity. Um, I, I, I can see why you think it might, but it, <laughs> I don't know. For some reason, it doesn't. I don't, I don't have a formal outline. I'm not one of these writers who uh, outlines every what's going to be in every scene, what's going to be in every chapter. I might be faster if I did. I did have to do that in Hollywood. Uh, I had never done that before, and when I got to Hollywood, I didn't want to do that, but they made me. Uh, I, I kept saying, just let me write the script, and I'll, I'll, then you'll see how it comes out. And no, no, I have to have the outline first. So I got used to outlining there, but I never liked it. It did take away some of the spontaneity. I, I felt, uh, you know, I, in some senses, I had already told the story, even though I had only told it in, in shorthand. And retelling... Retelling the story over again is not as much fun as telling the story for the first time. Um, there was a wonderful novel that came out uh, oh, a decade or more ago uh, called Replay by Ken Grimwood. Um, some of you may have read it. Science fiction novel. It's about a guy who wakes up uh, one day. Uh, he's a, like a 45-year-old businessman. He has a heart attack. He dies. He suddenly wakes up. He's, he's 17 years old. He's in his college dormitory. And he has his whole life to live over. It's, you know, it's 1970, 68 again, or whatever it is. And uh, it's the story of what happens to him as he lives that over. And when I read that book, I thought about myself. And what would it, what would it be like for me if I suddenly was back at Northwestern? It was 1968, and I woke up, and I'm a freshman in my dormitory. But I have all my memories, so I know what my life was like. And I know all the stories that I wrote. And it was actually a terrifying thought, because I said, well, wait a minute. <laughs> I have to write Sand Kings again, you know? I, it turned out pretty well the last time, but I don't remember exactly how it goes. I mean, what if I mess it up this time? And not only that, but then I have to write the bad stories again, the ones that nobody liked when they came out. Or can I just, like, skip over them? Uh, you know, so outlining is almost a little bit like that. It's, it's, it's like, okay, you told the story once in outline. Now you have to tell it again with, like, words. And um, so I prefer not to do that. Um, Stephen King wrote this great book called On Writing, about the craft of writing. And the first scene, he describes him and Amy Tan sitting around a table talking about how no one ever asked them, these popular fiction authors, about the craft of writing. And I was wondering if you ever sweat that stuff. I mean, do you consider your sentences as much as, say, you know, John Irving or Tom Wolfe would sit there and worry about stuff? Or do you find that it's the story that compels you and that drives you more than the language? I, I, yeah, I certainly consider my sentences. I don't know if I consider them as much as Tom Wolfe or John Irving, but uh, I tell you, following those two guys is uh, intimidating. And Neil Gaiman in the middle. I love you. It's all good. <laughs> but uh, uh, those are two of the great writers of our time, three of the great writers of our time with Neil in there. Um, Particularly with the advent of computers, I, I think computers are, uh, you know, a, a great adjunct to rewriting. I rewrite a lot more in these days. I'm constantly polishing my prose and trying to, trying to get the sentence there. Of course, I have a lot of sentences in my books, so uh, <laughs> admittedly, some of them get more uh, more attention than others. 
but yeah, the craft of writing, I mean, is something that I consider and is something that, that I worry about. And it's one of the hardest things. I mean, I have the scenes in my head. You know, I can see, I can see how the battle is going. And now I have to get it into your head, and I have to find the words to do that. And choosing those words, the right words that will get the image across and, and, you know, make everything flow and be exciting and have a certain poetry itself, it's, it's very difficult. Yes? Um, I was just uh, wondering if, uh, how you keep all this stuff, I mean, all your plot lines and subplot lines in your, I mean, do you keep them in your head? Do you have a notebook or several notebooks, obviously, with this stuff? I, I keep them in my head. That's why I need such big hats. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I, I don't have... I have a few pages of notebooks, and I have a few notes that I keep things, but no formal outlines, and you'd be surprised at how relatively little there is. So uh, most of it is just uh, in my head. God help me, so I better not get hit by a bus. <laughs> All right. Wow. So I, the reason I played that whole thing is, is I originally just was going to talk about his uh, outline thing. Uh, but he gets good stuff about rewriting and setting structure. And George has, and, he, and he's very aware of it. He has he has a specific writing style. In fact, there's another video I'll probably watch. Uh, I haven't watched it yet on the channel. Just the title is George R. R. Martin on criticism of his writing style. I'm not here to criticize his writing style. I think George is one of those uh, once in a lifetime geniuses for what he does. I think there's some really bad advice in this clip for for people who are maybe set out to writing for a writing career. I wonder, because this is in 2005, uh, which is weird to hear. In 2005, he's speaking of computers like they're still relatively new. Uh, that was interesting. But the fact that, you know, he doesn't have, it's all in his head, doesn't have a lot of written written down, doesn't have these outlines, kind of refuses. He, You can tell his, his 1980s experience with Hollywood just burned him, right? Again, the whole, I'm going to write, a, a, I'm gonna write a, a fantasy series that is unadaptable by movies or TV. That was one of the driving ideas behind a song of ice and fire and that's why i still err on the side of defending dan and dave for all eight seasons because they're faced they were faced with that that tough task oh you know there's no breadcrumbs on that trail on purpose by george but he had to at some at some point you know the ending is is out there the ending is there the ending was kind of whispered to dan and dave as we know in, in theory there so i i wonder if that's changed but it, it makes so much sense, not, it, not just as we wait for this book coming up on uh, 10 years. Um, it, 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 it's his style. It's, it's book four popping up. Feast for Crows was, you know, a different plan. If he stuck to what he had of an outline, we have a time jump in the books and things uh, go a lot different. Instead, Feast for Crows, which actually kind of jumps back to book three and runs alongside of, uh, of it for a lot of things or runs maybe even to book five. And how he plays along with that, I I love that, I love that approach. I would not recommend it if anyone's out there like I've got a high fantasy novel, go for it. But I know, but do, writing in pencil is the best thing. We hear that a lot in, in these discussions on Star Wars. Got to have a plan. You got to have a plan. Eh, yes, you, you should. Uh, that helps. But don't be afraid to veer off. Don't be afraid to find out what you discover. So I play this clip of George. I, just think, I think it's just fascinating to get into his mind. But as we wait for this new book, I wouldn't change a thing of what he does. I think if you're able to just set aside some of the some of the little nitpicks on his styles or anything that you might hear, and he's got a lot. He's got the jokes about him focusing on food. That's why I keep going back to why I love Fire and Blood so much. I love Fire and Blood because it just 
It's a history book. It's a different approach. He can't go far off the path. He has a built-in outline to it there, and, and I just found it to be a smoother experience. But doesn't mean I don't love every corner of his stories and every corner of his books. It's hard to reread. I've been poking at Fe- Feast for Crows recently uh, over the last, I mean, actually, quite frankly, it was two years. It's one of those, like, eh, it's, it's here on my nightstand. Let me read a half a chapter. Let me get through it. Not because uh, I mean a comment on Feast for Crows or anything, just, you know, it's a hard read. It's a hard read. And George seems to pride himself on that. But I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't change it because I do enjoy where he takes the stories. And we've all, if you've read the books, you've all probably been in the middle of a chapter going, man, I wish we could get back to Cersei. Uh, I wish we could get back to uh, Tyrion. Uh, You know, that happens a lot. And that might be because of how he just writes himself into corners and he writes himself, needs to write himself out. And it is a story. It is the journey. And the characters do feel like they're discovering things for the first time, just as the author is. So I think a little bit of, of this has probably changed for George because of the TV show. But I, I doubt he's writing Winds of Winter any different. He might have those endpoints. But as we were just talking with the name of Jon Snow, I got to imagine it's different. I got to imagine the big, broad strokes are there, like we keep hearing, but that he's not going to be afraid to change them, which is interesting. We'll see. That could be just when you think you're kind of done fighting over about Game of Thrones with people, especially people you love and respect, and you're trying to maintain that love and respect, but they're just at odds with you and your personal opinions. It's just fine. It's life, right? We all got to come to the table and get along at some point. Um, but I think that's going to be the final battlefront. I think that is going to be the final battlefront about HBO's Game of Thrones will be when George releases Winds of Winter and things, you know, start going different. And beyond just the, yeah, the Hodor scene, hold the doors, it's similar but different, eh? as he came out and said when that episode played. I, I think there's going to be some big differences. And it's going to be hard not to think that George did it on purpose. I'm going to roll up my sleeve, put on a tinfoil hat, and have I'll be there for some of those theories. not going to lie. But I think in hearing this interview... Going back to 2005, I still think he's doing this. I still think he's got this kind of approach because it's George R. R. Martin, and he doesn't need to change it. I wouldn't recommend this to any young uh, writer or author out there. (laughs) Uh, It's it's dangerous. It's dangerous. It can kill your story if you just kind of write yourself into corners and write yourself in circles. But it doesn't uh, doesn't affect George R. R. Martin like it would the rest of us. So, George... Get down there, get to your typewriter, whatever you use. I gotta imagine he has some old computer still. I, I, I imagine George has got a real good fancy computer somewhere, but that he writes on like a Dell 2009 and Spirion or something like that. I don't know. George, get to it, and we're excited for what's gonna come. Man, I'm actually, I'm actually, there you go. I actually, I actually got some excitement for Winds of Winter. Uh, all right, we're going to take a quick break. On the other side of this break, we get a call from Eric Monroe about duty, a great what if, kind of related to some Jon Snow stuff. And Addie's got a question about the Game of Thrones pilot, not the unaired one that uh, comes up a lot. Google Game of Thrones pilot. That's what you get. Oodles and oodles of videos and clips and think pieces on the unaired pilot. But we're talking about the one we did see. Winds, uh, not winds of winter, winter is coming. The book is on my mind. We're going to be talking about that after this break here on Casterly Talk. Stick around. 
Hey y'all, what's going on? This is Kojak. I create music that can be found both on YouTube and SoundCloud, and now I'm a recent streamer on Twitch. So if you're looking for some chill instrumentals, check me out on YouTube and SoundCloud under KOJQ. And for some laughs, you can check my Twitch page under KO underscore JQ. Everyone, please be safe and thank you. in pop culture art, sleek designs, and some of the best brand logos around. Shop G9 Design on TeePublic and represent the electrifying art of Janine Bryce with a shirt, wall art, and more. Go to TeePublic.com slash user slash G9 Design. And while you're searching the G9 Design storefront, check out Janine's show, It's a Wonderful Podcast, available right here on Anchor and wherever podcasts are found. team, I'm Grace Hancock, and I wanted to let you know that I'm adding new designs to my Society6 shop with several on their way. If you didn't know, you can go to society6.com slash Mrs. Graceface and shop prints of my original artwork, as well as tons of other items like stationery, notebooks, mugs, throw pillows. It's a great place to shop for gifts or just for yourself, especially in my shop if you like witchy expressionism. So head to society6.com slash Mrs. Graceface and check it out. Welcome back to Casterly Talk. I'm Ken Napsock, the 65th edition of Casterly Talk. Got some great questions. If you have a question for us, you want to call in and leave a message, do, do so via the Anchor app. The podcast is, as always, available on a lot of different spots. Continue to listen where you want to listen. But if you want to call in, go ahead and download the Anchor app, search for Casterly Talk, and just leave a message. Love hearing from y'all. It's the lifeblood of the show. Going back to uh, this show's roots in the other show, Daily Thrones. That's where this came from. So, I got some calls here. We had uh, Nick already calling in. We had a great call last week from Alden Diaz about the Night's Watch and Free Folk, um, which tied in perfectly to the talk I wanted last week, uh, which was Jon Snow and the Why of Jon Snow. Well, we got a... Great. What if here from Thomas? Let's hear it about Jon Snow. Hey, Ken, it's Thomas Drufke from Chicago. I have a, a what if question for you, and that's back in season five when Jon Snow became the war commander. And I was curious as to what you think if Thorne would have actually been the winner uh, that day. I know that Jon was already ready to decline Stannis's offer to become Jon Stark uh, anyway before that nomination. But if Thorne becomes the Lord commander, he's only going to be tougher on the free folk. And so does Jon end up striking a deal with Stannis behind Thorne's back? To help the free folk. Uh, I know John's a pretty loyal guy, and I have a feeling he probably would have tried to stick it out under Thorne. But what would that ripple effect have been? Does he ever get killed by his own men, which would then not quote-unquote allow him to leave the Night's Watch, thus take back the North from Ramsey, meet Danny, and end up killing her in the end to restore peace? Just interesting to think about how things could have been so different if Maester Aemon didn't give his vote to John. Thanks. That is a great what if, Thomas. I love this one here because as uh, Thomas laid out, talking about the butterfly effect, a lot of things go different if this doesn't happen. 
And I do think Sir Alistair Thorne, who, as you all know, I, I do enjoy. I do like. I think he's got some problems. I think he's lost a little touch with his empathy, compassion, humanity, and all those things. But he's a hard man, and uh, you, need to, you need to have a, uh, a little bit of callous, uh, callousness up there at the wall. It is uh, self-preservation. So uh, I think he wins because I do think he does have the begrudging respect of a lot of folks. I think even... If he trains you hard and you hate him and you want to stab him right in the eye, once you become a ranger and your first ranging trip north of the wall, you probably think, you know, I'm glad Sir Alistair Thorne uh, taught me with um, a little bit of uh, a, a little bit of a heavy hand, if you will. So I think he wins. I think he wins uh, if John, uh, you know, isn't running or John at any point takes another deal or. Again, uh, diving a little bit more into Thompson's question, what if, what if Eamon says, John's not ready, it's not part of your journey, just votes for Thorne? Thorne would have been a okay Lord Commander. I think he has an understanding of leadership. He just he, he lacks the bedside manner. He lacks the people skills. And, he, and again, he's got some problems. I love Thorne, but I'm not fully defending him here. He's not Jor Mormon by any stretch of the imagination. But one of the things he does, he lacks kind of, uh, because he lacks that empathy and that foresight. Yeah, absolutely. Thomas is right. He is uh, is not treating the free folk like the free folk. Um, And this, you know, and this this is after the Watchers of the Wall battle. So that even drives it home even more. And he is not going to go have that conversation with Mance where John gets a different perspective and really gets some of the points of wilding versus free folk driven home as he has that conversation with Mance where he goes to, to be a martyr, to try to kill him. Stannis' arrival, all this, none of that happens. Stannis arrives, but trying to put Jon Snow aside for a second, but Stannis arrives, saves the day, which probably still would have happened. Thorne's there. It's a different relationship. Um, There is never the opportunity for the free folk to come down. So John still has that thought. He still has a perspective. He might not have had that conversation with Mance. Eh, maybe he does, because again, he's a, he's elected after. We're, we're playing around with some of the timelines. But John has that perspective. He, he he's, he's not pulling off of that. And yeah, I think it creates a situation where John, he's not going to willingly go against his oath. Again, that's why the death helped to help clear him. But with Stannis there, Thorne, I think there would have been some kind of mutiny. I think John would have made that decision. I think John always, uh, he, he's going to keep to those oaths. Yes, he kept to that oath. Yes. But John sides with humanity. He sides with mercy. His idea of being a hero is protecting those that can't protect himself. And he was willing, even as the leader, to go against time-honored traditions time-honored standards. So I think it would have put him in, in a situation. I think he still might have died. There's still a, a, a what-if path uh, uh, to death here for John. Maybe it's a duel with Alistair Thorne. Uh, John might have won, but you know what I mean? I still I still think it's there. I still think he gets a knife in the gut. Cotter, Pike, Ollie, anyone. I, I, I think Thorne has enough people supporting him. And again, enough people afraid to... Not just go against Thorn, but afraid to go against generations of what they know. That's frustrating. That's troubling. It can make you angry. 
But I don't think you can lose sight of that. You have to have some understanding of an individual might not be bad, but they might be beholden to some old traditions that are really bad and horrendous and you want them to change. And sometimes you got to conk them over the head and other times you got to work other ways uh, to make it happen. John is capable of both, but I think he'd have to do a big conk over the head if he wasn't Lord Commander. And I still think there would have been a big, a big to do and he might have lost his life. And some of the other stuff would have happened. But it's an interesting one. I love playing it out. I love playing it out because of all the leadership positions John assumes. This is just me talking here. John becoming Lord Commander is one of the only ones that even though yeah, the burden's heavy on him, he almost wanted, right? He was groomed for that. Forget the big the boy who would be king and prophecies and everything. He's sent up to the wall. Jor Mormont recognizes what he is, makes him his personal steward because he wants to teach him how to lead. He knows what he'd do. Jor, Jor Mormont knows he's better. He's the best of them. He's the best of us. Jor Mormont knows I've made mistakes. I've made sacrifices. I've made compromises that have probably cracked a little bit of my soul. John, it's, it, 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 you're going to have to learn some of it, but I still think you can be better. And I think so even outside of all the big uh, myths and fables attached to the story, I think John John would have uh, wanted and did want to be the Lord Commander at, at some point. So King of the North, King of the uh, king on the Iron Throne, none of those really fit with John by the time he gets to those positions. Yeah, King of the North, you know, maybe maybe uh, likes it on his business card after a while, but he uses it for a greater good. He 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 doesn't fight it after a while because he knows it can help lead to a greater good. And then he even then he's fighting against some of his people and he's fighting against houses, trying to rally what he can, and it's hard. That's why I love the Leanna Mormont scene to go off on a, a little bit of a tangent when you first see her. It is such a wonderful. Typical Game of Thrones scene. It's a little drawn out. It's a small moment made big, but it's an important moment. All small moment, moments are, are, are important, and all small Mormonts are important. Uh, um, and all that, you go through all that scene, and it's for 70 men, right? And it's like it just drives home the futility of John's quest there and doesn't make being king of the north easy or fun. Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, eh, I'm sure it's got some fun moments. You know, maybe you get an extra log on the fire, but it's the only one where I see John just going, okay, yeah, I like this one. So he uses it, though. He does use it, and it costs him. He uses it for good there, too. But anyways, I'm going off a little bit of a tangent. I love that question. I think some things, it, it, some things could end up in the same spot. These what-ifs a lot of times change everything completely. Um, you know, Alistair Thorne takes over, uh, you know, after the, again, this is after the Watchers of the Walls when the vote happens, right? Um, I, think, I, think, I think there could be a defeat. I think his stubbornness of which it's, there's a lot, uh, could have led to a defeat. Maybe maybe the free folk win. <laughs> maybe they keep fighting. Uh, Stannis showing up changes a lot of it and keeps a lot of it in line. But even then, maybe they're, you know, there's still some sort of fight. I don't know. I still think there's a big enough army. They start climbing walls. It's going to be trouble even, uh, even for them after a while. But anyways, 
that's now you're getting some individual what ifs about battles and everything. But I, I am poor Thorn. I like Thorn. I have a lot of sympathy for Thorn, but not to be. Uh, right. Uh, thank you, Thomas. Uh, Thomas Drift gave that question. Nick had the John, uh, John Snow question. Then we got this question from our good friend Eric Monroe. Hey, can I casually talk? So the line on Game of Thrones that I kind of equate to my real life was when Stannis says, great or small, we must do our duty. Because back in um, 2011, my mom suffered a, a bad stroke, and I always saw it as you know, my duty to her to help take care of her because she was such a wonderful mother to me. And, you know, when I was young, she laced me with sunblock before I would go to summer camp, so I wanted to be covered with freckles all over. And, you know, at the time, it felt like torture, but, you know, looking back on it now, she was doing her duty as a parent protecting me, so I felt I, of course, owed her the same. I miss her terribly. Um, but I think also think that line by Stannis really applies to, to a lot of things in real life, whether it be a job, or being a caregiver and, you know, a bunch of other things. So for me, that's the line for me that probably most sticks out as far as um, the personal story. Yeah, we were talking about some of this stuff recently, and I love hearing from Eric and, and having him share a memory with his mother, who he, he lost not too long ago. And Eric's a, an important member of this uh, Castle Talk community and and uh our hearts uh our hearts are always there with you eric and appreciate you sharing the, the little memory there and uh and the moment why we do love stannis i just want to focus on that there the the we must do uh our uh, we must do our duty uh line of thinking and even stannis at the end i i um yeah you know again i love i love my stannis baratheon but i i just one of the reasons i love his death scene even though i'm i'm, I'm still two uh, percent convinced he didn't die um I love that scene. I love that. I think that helped me accept that Stannis was dead, that that would be his final words. Go on, do your duty. He respects that to the end, even at the cost of his own life. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of that in Game of Thrones. Big or small, we all have to do our duty. And it all has a great purpose. Hot pie, bacon bread, and soups and broths. Feeding the soldiers, feeding the heroes coming on through. Maybe occasionally feeding a villain. Hot pie has a purpose. Septa Mordain, season one. Her duty is to, to raise these girls uh, as best she can for, for when Ned and Catelyn have other things to do, to help in that process. And I think her sacrifice is, uh, is one of the most noble sacrifices in the show. Um. Sending Sansa on her way to safety, uh, knowing that uh, she is about to die, and and that little um, act of get on out of here probably saved Sansa. Um, the Sansa, as we know, runs into um, a lot of issues down the line. But I love I love that scene. That is do your duty. Um, old Nan telling stories, doing her duty, passing down histories. It's part of her duty as well. There's a lot of them all through. Game of Thrones, and, and I love how that could translate into life. So what is your duty? And in these troubled, uh, trying, painful times, we all might have uh, uh, different areas that we want to join the fight, uh, little things and specialties we bring, and that's part of doing your duty as well. We must do our duty. And some duties are to stand on top of a wall, the flaming sword defending the realm from the approaching evil. And other duties 
or to bake some bread in a cafe, in a tavern, and spread love and comfort that way. From the top to the bottom, all the way in between, there's a lot of duties, a lot of duties in Game of Thrones, and a lot of duties in life. Good stuff to think on there, Eric. I appreciate that. Final call of the day. Kind of uh, one of the ones that uh, made me excited to say, uh, all of them. Let me, say, let me phrase that. All of the calls were great, but this is the one I was like, ooh, this is different. I want to talk about it here. Uh, and this is from our friend Addie. Hey, Canon Casterly Talk. Addie again. Back with a fairly superficial question. We all know that a lot of things can change between the pilot episode of a show and the rest of the show or the first season of a show and the rest of the show, especially as far as like design, costumes, hair and makeup, all those sort of aesthetics as they sort of figure them out. And I'm curious, what's one thing that you are glad got changed in that time after multiple viewings of the pilot in the first season? And one thing, maybe if you've got one that you wish they hadn't changed. I don't know about the latter, but I, for one, am very glad that Tyrion did not remain as blonde as he is in the pilot for the rest of the show. Curious to hear what you've got. Hope you're staying safe and healthy. And thanks for the pod. Thank you, Addy, for the call here into the pod. So we're going again to Winter is Coming, Season 1, Episode 1. I think for a lot of us, this is the episode we've seen the most. It's the first of your rewatch. It is an easy episode to digest if you just want to, if you're just having a TV dinner for lunch and you want to, I want to watch some Game of Thrones, watch the pilot again. That's how I have seen it so many times. More than just my official rewatches. It's just the, eh, you know, I want to see the opening scene again. Yeah, watch the whole episode. So many stuff, uh, so many good things in there. Yeah, every pilot, every TV show pilot, the ones that stick, not the ones that are shot and then lost and reshot, uh, which is rare. Uh, there's always a little changes there. Uh, the Tyrion hair one is, is, is one of the ones that just, uh, always, it's, it's, it's probably the most easy, easily accessible one, right? Like, and I'm so glad, whoa, that one, that one, uh, it would not have worked. <laughs> and I think Dinklage was like, this isn't going to work. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to do something about this. So I think uh, there's that. So um, a couple of changes uh, on my mind here that, that um, and, and full disclosure, I didn't rewatch the episode today. I just kind of thought back to some things and what they jumped out uh, to help answer Addie's question. Um, and, and Addie has a, you know, what, what, what would they, what did they change that you liked and maybe something you changed that they, they didn't like and, and just changes in general here in the pilot. I, I, uh, the titles... There's only a few spots, right? King's Landing definitely pops in my head. Don't, I think they do Winterfell once, right? The titles on screen for some of the lands. I am torn. Now, I, I, don't, I didn't find the show to be, I'm talking early on, didn't find the show to be too confusing. I know some people did. That's fair. But I kind of initially was like, hey, you know, I hadn't read the books yet. I, I, you know, maybe by this point started looking at a map, but I, you know, you don't know where you're at. So I wanted the titles, but I think I'm glad those in the end, I'm kind of glad those went away. Not for bragging rights, not because I believe you can't enjoy or understand a show. If you're like, hey, you know, what was that castle they were at? Um, I just think it, it just, the, the opening titles, 
they did that enough, and I think that made the opening titles even more special. And I don't have a problem with the show making you pay attention just a little bit more. It is kind of a little litmus test. Again, I don't if you're if you're one of those listeners who's like I sometimes still even now a name drops out of my head or the, the, a land or a realm. That's not what I'm talking about. I, I just you know it's okay for a show to say hey, come in, follow us down this path a little bit. We're not going to help you as much, and you're going to be rewarded for that. So I'm glad about that change. I though I got to tell you, I understand the changes and they change. All through the show. But the White Walkers, going back to that opening, I've talked a lot here about how that cold open of the show was what it took. For me going, I don't know, there's some fantasy books. I've heard a couple of my employees at work talking about them. I saw an interview with the George R. R. Martin guy talking about his how great it was to see his book come to life. And, all right, I like Lord of the Rings. Let me give this a shot, right? That was my introduction to it. April, what, 17th, 2011, right around my birthday, on April 19th, I sit down, bring up the old HBO DVR uh, here. All right, I, oh, I saved that fantasy show. Let me watch that. It was, it was I didn't want, I remember not really watching it. Live, it would have been like 6 p.m. my time. Usually is when the episodes would drop because it's usually a 9 p.m. Eastern kind of release. I think it was like an hour or two after. All right. I mean, I'm more interested. I'm in Boardwalk Empire, which is a show I do love, by the way. But all right, here we go. And that's all it took. I was Garrett, Will, Waymer, Royce, a White Walker. I was terrified. I was intrigued. And then smash cut to those opening credits where you see the world you're about to end. Wow. So the White Walkers, I used to say to my friend Paul, bleeping White Walkers, man. They used to terrify me. In season two, Jon Snow with Craster's Keep and the baby and seeing the White Walkers then. Ah, freaked me out. Now by the end of season two, we really get a good look at them. And by then the designs change. And again, I actually understand it. I understand because you're, you know, then you lead up to the Night King and, and it's got to have some functionality to it. Um, uh, you know, uh, the costumes, whatever. I, I get it. And, and Hard Home, it works for me. Every, it, it, every version of the White Walkers work for me. And it also could have been that I, you know, you just get familiar with it. What used to frighten you in the dark, eh, now there's some light on it. You're not as afraid anymore. But nothing really captured what I thought they were in my imagination from just kind of seeing them in season one, episode one. Nothing terrified me more. Again, by season two, oh, God, I'm so terrified. Oh, God, here they come, those flipping White Walkers. And then by the end, but I remember, gosh, I remember when those, that third horn blows at the end of, of, of season two. And Ed and, and uh, Gren and Sam are, are out there in the snow. And they hear that third horn. Oh, my God. And the stomach, my stomach dropped out. Lump in my throat. Because I immediately went back to, no, what, what that, that weird ice shadowy thing I saw back in season one and kind of saw at the beginning of the season. I can't, I can't do it. I can't deal with it. And I was as terrified as Sam. I'm telling you, I'm not lying. I was terrified. I get scared easily. Me and my pal Josh McCook get scared at a lot of things. 
and the snow starts coming and Sam's trapping on the walk and, and they shoot it so well because the horse's foot is what you see first. You pet. Oh, my God. And it was scary, but it wasn't the same. Right. It was like, uh, yeah, OK, it looks like a it looks like a cold old man. All right. I can deal with that. So I get why they made the change. But going back to the pilot. And I know, you know, in the unaired pilot, as in the books, they're supposed to have a little bit of a language. David J. Peterson um, did have a chance to interview over at the uh, Screen Junkie show, talked about how he did create the whole language for them. Kind of glad we don't get that. Um, but that worked. So they changed it over time, and I know they had to, but that's one thing I love about Winter is Coming and that pilot. Them damn beeping white walkers. You know what I mean? All right. Hey, thank you very much for your question, Addy. It was awesome. You guys can follow me at Kednapsock. Go to Kednapsock.com for all the information on the things I do, including my book, Why We Love Star Wars. If you haven't picked that up, do so. The audio book, the, the hardcover. I got a couple left from my website. Signed uh, personalized copies for you. Go to Kednapsock.com. Check the charity spotlight tab. I am... Uh, got a few a lot of charities listed on there some suggested by patrons and, and some suggested by friends of mine uh, but also got one up there right now maddie's pride project where sales of originally original crafted 3d printed theme park ears ten dollars for every sale will go to the trevor project and that's from my cousin and her daughter so that is uh, important to me check that out the link is there at the charity spotlight tab at kenapsock.com that is it for now we'll see you Get those calls in. Let's have some more discussions here on Casterly Talk. <laughs>